want you to imagine with me uh, a world without sorry. Imagine a world where no one can say sorry. Uh, imagine a world where no one can apologize. What would that world be like? Well, first of all, you better make sure you get things right the first time, right? Because, well, you can't say you're sorry. Uh, what would it be like? Uh, how would it affect a marriage? How would it affect relationships? How would it affect your willingness to be vulnerable and try something? A world without sorry is a pretty unsafe place to be. A world without sorry is, is a place ready to explode, right? Because if one person's done something wrong and cannot say sorry, what does that other person do when they've been, when they've experienced an injustice? How do things get made right? What do you do in a world without sorry? It's actually not that far-fetched. I uh, looked into this and went down a rabbit hole of research this past week, and uh, there's certain cultures that, are, that struggle in more than other cultures when it comes to the word sorry. Uh, and you, you could see it reflected in, in a variety of ways. Uh, it's, it's a common thing in face culture in the Far East. Uh, and we don't, I'm not an insider to Asian culture, but uh, when I speak to my friends who are, they speak of it, and they speak about how difficult it is and how it shapes the culture in ways they wish it didn't. But more close to home... One of the things that's increasing around us as we move into post-Christendom, which is Christendom is the, the 1700 years where, the 16 to 1700 years where Christianity was a, was a dominant form, right? As we move into post-Christendom uh, with increased pluralism and postmodern language, we're returning in so many ways to much of the cultural expressions that were a part of the world before Christ came. And in particular, I, I, I came across how strong and growing honor culture is. Uh, honor is a good thing. We should honor one another. The scriptures say, honor one another. Above, you, know, you should uh, outdo one another in showing honor. That's a very good thing. But the honor culture that, that anthropologists have identified is the, the sharp contrast between honor and shame. That people live with either a sense of honor or shame, and if you admit weakness, if you admit failure, or if you say you're sorry, or if you say your apology, you give away honor, which is this unbelievably scarce resource. I, I want to read a quote I found on this, and I have to, I have to get, I give you a heads up on it. I'll, I'll give you a heads up on it in a moment. But 
Uh, research was done uh, by a gentleman named Gelfond about, about 10 years ago. And one, of he found, one of the things he found was honor culture teaches that self-worth must be earned and maintained and can be easily lost or stolen. Gelfand notes that honor cultures often involve in places with weak institutions. When I say weak institutions, it's not like they're broken or fragile or they're made with bad, but like institutions that the society and the community there doesn't trust. With weak institutions that residents can't rely on for protection, places such as the Middle East, South America, Eastern Europe, and I meant that's my and hear this that's my language i wrote it into the quote accidentally and hear this the american south in the research people apologize less in honor cultures because it threatens their reputations the act of apologizing is admitting wrongdoing and in effect can make people lose honor a prized commodity. You hear the commodity? Commodity is scarcity language. There's only so much honor to go around. If I give you honor, then I'm probably spending some of my own, right? That's how things work with a commodity. A prized commodity in these contexts. It is in these contexts, research shows, that conflict is more common it escalates more quickly and correlates with increased domestic assaults, dueling, gang violence, and suicide bombings. Imagine a world with fewer and fewer sorries. Imagine a world with fewer and fewer apologies. Imagine where honor is scarce. If we give it to someone else, we spend some of our own, so we need to spend it well. If no one was able to admit what th where they were wrong, this world would become uh, very fearful. Uh, entrepreneurship would go way down, right? Because you can't take risks, you can't be vulnerable, right? Entrepreneurship goes down, risks go down, vulnerability goes down. Hear this, dating would go down, right? Because if I put myself out there, and they, then I get shame, right? All these things go down when there's a scarcity of honor. Today we're going to talk about how following Jesus is absolutely different. Fundamentally different. More different in tremendously powerful ways. And what he offers to us, and through us, what we offer to the world, is a radical, wonderful, mind-blowing, life-transforming, all-caps hope that's fundamentally different than anything else that's offered to the world. And I'm not talking like the hope of Christian platitudes. I'm talking about the hope of the resurrection, like somebody died and rose from the dead, and that very same power now lives in us, and it absolutely transforms everything. And it's fundamentally different than most of the Christianity that's, that's really quite weak that you see. And Jesus wants to get it clear with us. We're in a series called You Had One Job because we're trying to get really clear on what is our calling as believers? What is our calling as, as a church? 
Two weeks ago, uh, we, we looked at what uh, looked at Jesus' last words, and we're doing looking at Jesus' last words in each of the Gospels in the book of Acts. And in the book of Matthew, he said, look, last thing Jesus says, look, go and make disciples. The one thing you need to do, your one job is to make disciples. Take what you've been given and invest it into other people. Take what you've been given and invest it in other people. Last week, we, we talked about what we've been given, right? So the first, Matthew, he says, look, you have to take what's been given to you and give it to others, right? Uh, last week, we stepped back and we looked at the, uh, the gospel of Mark where he says, uh, preach the gospel to all creation. What we've been given is we've been included into the renewal, renewal of all things, that the Messiah has come and in him all things are going to be transformed. Now we are included in that, and that affects our work, affects our relationships, affects the way we think about ourselves personally, the way we think about others, the way we think about our culture, the way we think uh, about all things. And, and every little thing matters because all things are going to be part of the renewal of all things, and we get to be included in it. That the gospel is not uh, some sort of fire insurance, and Jesus is not some Jake from State Farm in heaven in khaki pants saying, here's your get out of heaven free card, go sin and do whatever you want. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has come, he died, he rose from the again, and in his resurrection, the renewal of all things has begun, and all things will be touched by the renewal of all things, and we are sent to extend that good news and figure it out in all things. This week, we look at why this is so good. And, and, and hear this, so different than just about every other message that we are offered. So uh, we're going to look, so we did Matthew two weeks ago, we did Mark this past week. Today I'm going to read Jesus' last words in, in the book, in the Gospel of Luke. And... Uh, in order to kind of get a sense of it, in order to appreciate what we're going to be talking about, I want you to imagine that you're having dinner with, uh, you get to have dinner with J.K. Rowling, who wrote the Harry Potter series. And also at that dinner table is J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings. Uh, and let's throw George Lucas who uh, into it, who, who put together this, the whole Star Wars world, the world of Star Wars. And if we're doing that, we'll bring Kevin Feige, I think that's how you pronounce the name, who is the director of all the Marvel MCU movies, right? Let's put them together at a dinner table and ask them one simple question. All right, guys, um, our men and women, uh, what was the point? You wrote these epics, these epic storylines, these movies and these, and these books, these stories that had these tremendous sort of canons to them, what, at the, if you could summarize it into two sentences, what was the message? I'm, I'm not so sure I would know what they would answer for that, but what we are going to have the opportunity to hear is Jesus say, okay, what is the message of the scriptures? What is the fundamental message of the scriptures? He is going to summarize the Bible in two sentences. All right. So uh, with that, knowing that that's coming, I want you to look for that as I read uh, Luke chapter 24 and look for the space where Jesus is going to say, all right, this is, what the entire, this is what the entirety of the scriptures say. This is what they mean. 
uh, a little background. What has happened is Jesus died, and uh, and some 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 of the women went to the tomb, and it was empty, and they're all freaked out about it, and everybody's just kind of weirded out about the fact that uh, the tomb is empty. And then two disciples came and said they came to the rest of the disciples and said he appeared to us, and it was totally Jesus. And everyone's like, I don't know. All right. All right, and so they're all kind of in this, like, they're freaked out. They're trying to figure out what exactly happened, and that's where our passage begins. It says this, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened. Clearly, they didn't hit the message, peace be with you. Anyway, they're startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. All right. A whole bunch of things going on here, right? Jesus says to them, if you want to understand the Old Testament, the entire this, the, the scriptures that they had at the time, all the scriptures pointed to this moment when the Messiah would arrive, would, would die, and then would rise again. And, and that would be the beginning of the renewal of all things. And then what's going to happen is that from there, repentance uh, for the forgiveness of sins is going to be preached in his name to every nation beginning in, in Jerusalem. And that's exactly what has happened. A couple things to note about that is that, that Jesus is saying, look, people are going to go talk about that you can change. And that's going to be told throughout the entire world. This tremendously hopeful message that people can change, that anybody can change. Anything can change. Anybody can change. Anything can change. Which is awesome. And he didn't, he didn't even make it a command. He didn't say, go and preach repentance and forgiveness of sins. He said, no, people are going to experience and they're not going to be able to stop talking about it. They're going to experience it and it's just going to be talked about. People will not be able to not talk about it. Why? Because it matters. People's lives are going to be changed. They're going to talk about it. I don't mean to tell them to talk about it because once they experience, they won't be able to not talk about it. Why? Because it's so hopeful. It's so wonderful. It's radical. It's wonderful. It's mind-blowing. It's life-changing. It's all caps hope and everyone's going to talk about it. Why? Because why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Which is amazing, but if we look at the story, we might be able to relate to it. 
Because here are the disciples, and they're sitting there looking at the person that they had seen dead. Some of them literally saw him die. Some of them saw his dead body. Some of them saw that he was put in a tomb. Everybody knew that he was dead, and here he was, risen from the dead. And what it was, they were amazed, they were excited, but they also doubted. They're like, I don't know. I don't know, like, let, let me touch... Let me touch the wounds. I think one of the most compelling evidences for the, for the trustworthiness of the scriptures is just how honest they are. Uh, most people don't trust histories, right? Because they, they, they'd call histories a pack of lies agreed upon. But if you are going to write a history, you always elevate the founders, right? Well, here are the founders failing. You would never do that with the founders. They, they, they didn't trust him. They literally needed to see him eat a fish. Not a raw fish, not a fried fish, not a deep fried fish, not a Kentucky fried fish, a broiled fish. Why would you put those details in if you didn't want it to be included, right? Like, sir, literally, he put food in his body, his resurrected body, and who knows what happened after it was digested. But it happened, right? It happened. These things really happened, and they struggled with it. And I think if we would be, allow ourselves some authentic, authenticity, is that we struggle with it as well. We really do struggle with doubt. We doubt it as well. They doubted it. We doubt it. And, and because we doubt it, 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 well, I think it hurts our hope. I think it snuffs our hope. And that very thing of proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sins joyfully often doesn't happen. Why? Because of a lack of hope. But I think the reason why we lack that hope and why we struggle with it is that, well, just like the disciples, we're functioning from, well, a different story. The point number one to kind of unpack this thing is we got to understand what the real story is. See, the disciples, they never expected this. They never expected this at all. They didn't expect that a Messiah was going to die. They didn't expect that a Messiah was going to rise again. They didn't really think much about resurrection at all. We think way more about resurrection than they ever did. Why? Because we have movies. Every good movie has a resurrection somewhere around in it, right? It's a common theme, right? Because, well, Jesus and, and, and Christendom, and, and so everybody kind of thinks about resurrection. Nobody thought about resurrection then. There are some Jews that taught that there's going to be a resurrection of the faithful uh, at the end of history. And they kind of thought about that, right? But nobody ever expected that there was going to be a resurrection in the middle of history, certainly by the Messiah, because why would the Messiah ever die? In their storyline, the Messiah comes, restores them to political power, and puts them on top. The Messiah would never suffer. The Messiah would never struggle. The Messiah would certainly not die. And so if, if, if they had no conception of a Messiah dying, why would they ever have a conception of a Messiah rising from the dead? Because they don't think about those things. And because they didn't think about those things, it didn't fit their story. And because it didn't fit their story, they, they were not filled with hope when they saw him. They're filled with like, they just couldn't figure it out. They just couldn't figure out. And because Jesus knew that they couldn't figure out, he's like, look, here's no, this is going to go really well, but stay right here. Stay right here until you get the Holy Spirit. That's, that comes later. You're going to hurt yourself if you go anywhere. Just stay 
right here. They're going to need both God's spirit in their heart and there's some time to process to understand that the most amazing thing has happened in this world, that God himself has come as the Messiah to fulfill the, fulfill the need to see uh, sin redeemed in death and to bring the renewal of all things through his resurrection. But it took them time to figure that out. And until they could figure it out, that then the hope exploded. Once the hope exploded, you couldn't stop these people. I think, similarly, we live in a world with, a very, with very, very different storylines that are pushed upon us all the time. I want to come back to honor culture. Honor culture has a very, very different storyline that, that many of us have been raised in. And if we're not being raised in it, it's pushing at us through our screens all the time. The story of honor culture is that there are honorable people and there are shameful people. There are good guys and there's bad guys. And the good guys should be honored. And those who are not in the good guy club should be shamed. The most important thing in honor culture is you, you need to win you need to win, and you need to keep your kids from being part of the shame culture. You need to make sure they're moral, they're pure, and they do the right thing, and they stay inside of our club. Honor culture plays itself out in morality-driven th- driven faith, and you don't, if you don't believe that this is a part of your faith, you're probably not being honest with yourself. Morality-driven faith is, if I do all the good things and the right things, God will give me the life that I want. Next time you feel a resentment, check yourself if there's any morality-driven, honor, shame, faith going on inside of you. I'm doing these things. God should give me the life I want. That's honor culture. That's not Christianity. Culture wars. If you, if, if, if you use the word hater of, about people who disagree with you, that's honor, shame, culture. If you use the word woke about the people who disagree with you, you know, in a derogatory way. That's honor, shame, culture. That's not Christianity. Jesus has nothing to do with those things, right? There's no, there's no good guys and bad guys He's, in, in Christianity. You come to Jesus or you don't. And so there's an honor, shame, culture that I think particularly ferments strongly on the right, particularly within faith environments, but also within faith environments is the opposite side. It's postmodern culture. Uh, postmodern culture comes out as sort of the dignity culture, which is in dignity culture, and this is a good thing. This comes from Christianity. Christianity says every single person, Judeo-Christian values say every single person has dignity. But postmodernity has taken dignity culture and has, and has brought it to seed by saying, because I have dignity, I get to determine what's true and what's real for me. Right, and what what's really needed in this world is I, there's something inside me that needs to be fixed, or there's something inside of me that's missing, and I need something to be added to that. And so, in postmodern culture, the storyline is I just need to go inside to find myself. I need to find that thing that's missing, or I need somebody else to bring it from the outside. There's something that's going on that needs to be filled, and it can be that this. And, and you don't think this is in your life either. This is in all of our lives, right? It's the simple thing is that I can be happy once this happens. I can be happy once I get good grades. I can be happy once I, my team wins. I can be happy once I get on the team. I can be happy once I have a 
a boyfriend or girlfriend. I can be happy once I'm married. I can be happy once I have kids. I can be happy once I can have a job, a house with a mortgage. I can be happy once I have kids. I can be happy once my kids are under my control. I can be happy once I get my kids out. I can have my kids when, once they finally give me some grandkids. I can be happy once I'm healthy. I can be happy when always out there. And it's always rooted to yourself and your feelings. And Jesus says, if that is absolutely not what he has come to bring. That is not the hope that he offers you. He offers a radical, wonderful, mind-blowing, life-transforming, all-caps hope, but it's absolutely very, very different than what your screens are screaming at us all the time. Jesus tells a different story. To, to tell the truth, he fulfills the, the longings of honor culture, right? Where every citizen is held accountable. But he holds it accountable in himself. He dies for all the sins. And though it fulfills the longing of honor culture, it offends honor culture because, because he also says that you need to ask for forgiveness. You need to own your stuff. And all people are welcome. All people can come to the table. Everybody can come as they are, which is a stench in the nostrils of honor culture. He fulfills the longing of postmodern culture. Why? Because Jesus in his resurrection state is fully glorified. He is fully himself. There's nothing lacking. He, and, and to all who follow him, every single one of us will be fully realized to the, the vision that God had for us when he made us. Everything that those in postmodern culture long for is found in the hope of the gospel. The, the offense is that you must go through death to get there. And it does go through suffering, and it doesn't go through um, elevating the self. It comes through self-denial. Jesus says, he who keeps his life for himself will lose it. He who holds on to his life will lose it. Those who lose their lives for the sake of the gospel will gain it. And it's a stench in the postmodern nose. Why? Because the postmodern says, I must grab for it myself. Why? Because I can't trust anybody else to give it to me. Because everything is untrustworthy out there. He confront, Jesus confronts both of them and yet gives them the hope to which they really long for. The real story, though, means real hope. What is the real story? The scriptures said that the Messiah is going to suffer. That God himself will come and he will experience all of our pain. He will empathize with all of our pain. He will absorb all of the curse for all of the damage that we have done. He will not just experience our pain, but he will in his body receive and feel, feel the damage, feel the alienation, feel the loneliness, feel the depression, feel the panic of the separation from his father and his friends that we feel. The Messiah will suffer and will rise from the dead and in his resurrection 
will begin the renewal of all things. And the people who experience that won't be able to stop themselves from being able to share this radical, life-changing, all-caps hope with anybody they can. Why? Because it's that amazing. We need to recognize the stories that are foisted upon us all the time are quite deterministic. They don't offer much hope. They don't offer much hope, and they offer very low expectations for this world and for other people. And Jesus sees it otherwise. If you go all the way back in the beginning of the Gospels and you say, what was, the, what was the first thing Jesus said when he began his ministry? What was the first thing he said? What is, what is the theme of his sermon series, his first one? His first sermon series is simply this. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. He didn't say, repent for the kingdom of God is near. He didn't say, repent for the kingdom of God is there. He didn't say, repent for the kingdom of God is after you die. He said, the kingdom of God is here. Why? Because he is here. And the king is here. And, and what he was saying, is, he says, Don't ever, he's not saying, go everybody, get moral, get in line and start doing the right things. No, that's what the Pharisees and religious people were saying. He didn't say, the kingdom of God is near, go sit by yourself and, and find it inside of you. No, he said, the kingdom of God is here. He says, because I am here. And, and if you just turn to me, everything that you are longing for in your life, you will find in me. He says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. He says, uh, you will seek the truth and the truth will set you free. You're looking for freedom? You can come to him for the truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You want life? You can come to me for life. You, you, you want to know one true thing in this world? Well, he says, I am that one true thing. If, if you want grace, if you, we all need grace, you find grace in him. We find love in him. We find the forgiveness all in the king. And we don't perform to get it. We don't have to unlock something within. We don't need 12 classes online to find it. We don't, we don't need to do some sort of ritual. It's just him. The kingdom of God is here wherever Jesus is. Yes, it does come from the outside, but it does come free. This means there's... Absolute hope for addiction, absolute hope for loneliness, for marriage struggles, for burnout, for corruption, depression, anxiety, and disease. And it's a hope now, not once the world gets better, not once you get better, not once you work through it with your therapist or your rituals or your positive self-talk. It's hope now. I think when I think about the church and sometimes I, I, I struggle and not our church but churches and Christians in the world of Christianity I think when we experience disappointment it's because um, maybe it's a sickness that we, we lack 
a sense of how amazing this hope is. The scriptures offer us what Jesus has done, what the Messiah has done in the resurrection that we get to experience now, not later, is a radical, wonderful, mind-blowing, life-transforming, all-caps hope. I think it requires vulnerability to hope in this. And I think we're constantly getting knocked around by culture wars and the, the need to constantly always fix ourselves within. And we get tempted to go back into that bunker mentality. Once we get everything right in my house, then we could offer this. And, it, and we lose our boldness. We lose our courage. And, and we live with low expectations as to what God can do. What would it look like for us to repent of these low expectations and have grand expectations as to what God can do to change a life, to change anything? If the kingdom of God is here, then the power of the king is here. The hope of the king is here. The peace and the rest and the grace. No one needs to leave this room today without experiencing that grace and that forgiveness and that peace and that hope. Can we have higher expectations as to what God can do? If, if we look back at what he has done in history and how much he has changed this world and rebuilt so many things in this world, how what Jesus said has, is working itself out all the way throughout the world as the faith continues to be the most powerful movement in this world as it has been for the last 2,000 years? Can we have higher expectations, greater hope for what he could do in your life today, how he could be active in it in every single moment? Could we, ha could we have an amazing hope of what God can do we step into our life with greater hope. The real story will give us that real hope. I want to say hope is hard, though. And I want to show you a painting that describes it. It was a painting done by uh, Frederick, uh, George Frederick Watts about 150 years ago, right after the Civil War. If you look at it, it's a woman sitting on top of the world playing music, right? Cue, imagine dragons, I'm on top of the world, hey, hey you know, right? Uh, she's th sitting there on top of the world. She's playing music. That is hope, right? Uh, but when you look more closely, you look that getting to the top of the world was costly as her clothes are tattered as her eyes are blindfolded by her bandages that are seeping because of how difficult this world is on people who try to get to the top of the world or bear the burden of getting to the top of the world. Even the lyre or the harp she holds has had its strings broken. Even the world itself that you see is just a brownish blur, which is, I think, what a lot of people experience when it comes to the world, just this brownish blur of disappointment and frustration. And yet, 
with the way the world has, has been hard on her. The way the world has broken her down, has bowed her low, has bloodied her. She still pulls on that one string. She still makes music. She still makes music for the hope of this world. I believe that one string is the hope of the gospel that we offer this world. If your heart has been broken, if the strings of that which you have held on to for music has been broken, and, if, and all those strings have been broken, hear this, the hope of the gospel is for you. If the string of your dreams have been clipped, know this, there's still the string of the gospel that gives you hope for your life in this world. If you feel like every good deed of yours has gone punished, the hope of the gospel is for you. And the note is the sound that says the kingdom of God is here now and it is growing and we can be a part of it and the renewal of all things can play itself in our lives today. And this says that we have the hope of change, that anybody can change. Anybody can change. Even, your, even those enemies that honor and shame culture want to give you, they can change. Everybody can change. Anything can change. Why? Because the king is here. The kingdom is here. That means that we have a wonderful, radical, mind-blowing, life-transforming, all-caps hope that comes out of the resurrection and the renewal of all things. We have real hope. We have real hope. We, uh, we have one specific application that we're asking every single one of us who call 938 Church Home to do for at least the next 90 days. And we're asking that you would do this very specific, hopeful thing. Would you pray every single day? Can we pray together every single day at 938? Can we pray uh, out of the very story that comes from our name? Our name is born out of a passage in the Gospel of Matthew, not Matthew 935 to 9. 38. When Jesus looks at the crowds, he has hope. He has compassion for them. He says the harvest is plentiful. See, the world is filled with people who want this kind of hope. Would you pray that God would give us a harvest as a church, that God would grow our church? And particularly, will you pray for one person? At 938 each day, ask God to, she says, the harvest is plentiful. God, give us that harvest. And would you pray specifically for one person who may be far from God, maybe de-churched or unchurched, or may just be wandering off, someone who needs to know that help, would you specifically choose that person and just begin praying for that person? And along the way, long for the meaning of the friendship that comes from this kind of hope. So, um, if you would, bow your heads with me, and we're going to pray. We're going to pray that hope into our hearts even now.